0: Section fifteen of The Mystery of the Ocean Star. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mystery of the Ocean Star by W. Clark Russell. Section fifteen Old Ships. There was very recently and there may be still afloat a ship aged ninety-five years named the cognac packet commanded by one captain Bolton. she was built at burlesden hampshire in seventeen ninety two and took her name from the circumstance of having been engaged in carrying brandy from france she was rigged as a brig and is described as being very nearly as square as a box the last port to which he belonged was harwich and the good people of that town may still be amused with the sight of one of the oldest ships in the country yet engaged in earning money for her owner the fate of vessels is very much like the fate of human beings the average life of a ship i believe is about twelve years some perish very soon after they are born some struggle through a few years and then vanish some go on living their allotted span pretty defiantly though very unhappy in the gales of wind they encounter and the misfortunes which overtake them in respect of the shifting of cargo the losing of spars failures in the engine-room and so forth some but they are few survive into a venerable age float hoarily upon the blue and, with much creaking and rheumatic straining of their aged bones go on sailing out of living memory and arrive among a new generation who survey them as bits of fossilized history and talk of the monarchs who have died the battles which have been lost and won the marvellous changes which have been wrought since the old ships first slipped down the ways to the soaring of a fiddler and the huzzas of a crowd unhappily the life of a stout vessel which has done her work bravely does not always close with the honour and dignity one could wish the ocean sepulchre is denied her her inveterate trick of obstinate domination proves eventually her humiliation instead of her triumph she shows very raggedly at last and is laid by and offered to any one willing to pay a few pounds for the privilege of breaking her up perhaps if she were invariably knocked to pieces her dispersal would be only less dignified than her descent interment by old neptune the hammer would end her as a melancholy show a wreck lying black and bare on the yellow sand of a shoal at low water is a dismal sight but a good old ship dismantled lying alongside a quay and with yawning seams disdained by the maritime knackers an echoing nursery for the rude and boisterous sport of mudlarks is a far sadder spectacle yonder wave-swept hulk fell worthily in honourable conflict but this poor old craft with a board in her rigging offering her for a mere trifle is ending her days in distress and scorn an object for the sneers of passers-by and for the stones of small boys. Were she a man of war, she would engage attention. There would be a feeling of respect in those who regarded her. The imaginative mind would people her decks with trim salts, and decorate her with the red coat of the marine and the glittering swab of the naval officer of the day. As a vessel without tragic, romantic, or heroic memories, however, What significance can any one find in her melancholy appeal? She is like an aged pauper for whom no union has been invented, yet some of her triumphs over the wildness of waters and the fury of winds, some of her achievements in the form of smart runs and dexterous escapes, and some of the pictures of the human story which runs through her life might, if related, detain her for many an eye which would otherwise see in her nothing but a frowsy drowsy grey and lean old butter-box an instance of the base uses to which brave old ships may come at last is to be found in La hogue a vessel long famous as an australian liner she is now it being the year eighteen eighty seven a coal hulk anchored off Funchal, madeira this ship was for years one of the best known of the fine fleet owned by the late duncan dunbar and must to this hour be a name as familiar as a household word in many an australian as in many an english home she was built at sunderland in eighteen fifty three and is therefore only thirty four years old a mere girl in comparison with that venerable dame the cognac packet yet in thirty-four years she has done such great and useful work that it would be difficult for any one to view her in her present grimy and squalid state without an emotion of pity peace hath her victories no less renowned than war and craft of the kind of la hogue illustrate those victories as fabrics like Nelson's noble three-decker in Portsmouth water symbolize, and perpetuate the memories of mighty deeds of arms. It would be interesting to know how many thousands of bales of wool the ship La Hogue, now a sheer hulk in the dismalest sense of the words, has delivered safely in the East India docks in her time. What quantities of useful commodities spoken of under the heading of general cargo she has conveyed to our thriving kinsmen at sydney how many icebergs she has sighted in the thirty-two or thirty-three times she has rounded the horn how many leagues of dark blue water she has traversed since her keel was first laid yet the true pathos of such a sheer hulk lies in thoughts of the people she has carried the infants who are now middle-aged men and women, the blushing young ladies who are now hardy and seasoned matrons, and many of them grandmothers, the spirited youths who paced her decks without a shilling in their pockets, and whose sons have long since inherited their very substantial squatting businesses up-country. A hulk like La Hogue marks the flight of time even more startlingly than a gravestone. In the space of this vessel's life may be found many amazing chapters of the story of Australian progress, and the appeal she makes to the passengers of the great ocean steamers touching at Madeira, must inevitably gather force from the perception that to her and such ships, as she the Australian story owes, know little of its brilliancy. One is tempted to moralise on this poor old coal hulk as did Hamlet upon the skull of Yorick. Where are the gilt, the mirrors, the finery of her cuddy? Into what land of shadows has vanished the little procession of stewards, bearing in the dinner from the small galley forward, past sobbing scuppers and wet decks, sloping like the roof of a house? Possibly the melancholy concertina, may still be heard of nights on the ship's forecastle, when the labour of heaving out or taking in coal is over. But never shall the hearty fiddler, perched upon the boom forward, be there listened to again, nor the slapping of Jack's feet in the hornpipe, nor the sounds of a piano aft, with couples airily revolving on the poop, whilst the curl of silver moon slides down past the awning, and the solemn respiration of the equatorial swell awakens a sound as of deep sighs from the dew-darkened canvas swinging softly in and out from the masts. Some ships have proved noble relics in their day. Such was the Centurion, the queer old tub in which Commodore Anson cruised in the great South Sea, and with which he captured the tall Spanish galleon such was the golden hind sir francis drake's ship which lay a wonder and a show for many years off deptford when she was finally broken up a chair was made out of her planks and presented to the university of oxford which gave rise to cowley's epigram drake and his ship could not have wished from fate an happier station or more blessed estate For, lo, a seat of endless rest is given To her in Oxford, and to him in heaven. The golden hind has long since disappeared, But we have the noblest trophy of all the ages with us In the old victory, slumbering dotingly off Portsmouth. What craft worthy to perpetuate The tradition she serves to extend, shall replace her when her time comes the country ought to make sure however that that time shall be as long in coming as it is possible for human effort to contrive some may venture to doubt if the victory is as well cared for as so grand so incomparable so irreplaceable a relic merits familiarity has perhaps bred a certain indifference and induced a lack of that pious care which it is the first duty of the nation to bestow on the structure in which the famous admiral died. Such a ship as this ought to be as carefully tended as Westminster Abbey. Even as an impulse and an inspiration, she is of prodigious national value no sailor can view her without a stirring of his heart's best blood in him and one feels that she ought to be cherished with not less devotion than is dedicated abroad to the relics and remains of saints it is of course impossible to conceive of any merchantman rivalling in interest the famous ships of war yet the red ensign has its history too and there are vessels whose sheer hulks posterity would have been glad to look at there was the indiaman for instance in which old nathaniel dance beat off Linois's squadron she would have richly embellished any tract of waters another vessel the world would not willingly have lost was the betsy canes as rare a fabric in her day as the first folio shakespeare is rare as a book in these times. She brought over to England William, Prince of Orange, in sixteen eighty eight, and she went to pieces in a gale of wind off Tynemouth in February, eighteen twenty seven, one hundred and thirty nine years later. It is supposed that she was by no means a new ship when used by the Prince so that she might have been a hundred and fifty or a hundred and sixty years of age when she perished she had been one of queen anne's royal yachts and there is every reason to suppose that had she been suffered to enjoy a tranquil old age instead of being put to trade between shields and hamburg she might still be in existence the oldest vessel in the world and of its kind the greatest curiosity if however ships could speak we may take it they would choose rather to die an honourable death at sea than languish on for a few years in the miserable condition of a coal hulk the many in australia as here who remember la hogue in her prime will think of her now with sorrow there are marine survivals however of vanished structures which in their way are hardly less interesting than the craft in their integrity would themselves be. An old brass cannon and a piece of ship's capstan, of a pattern that probably has not been seen within the last hundred and fifty years, were thrown up on the Mexican coast near to Acapulco, and it is believed by those who are knowing in such matters that they are the very small remains of a large Spanish galleon one of the manila ships which founded off acapulco shortly after she had started on a voyage to the philippines it may be questioned whether the relics of an armada ship would be more interesting in any sense than those of one of the great treasure vessels which form the Sinosure of all the buccaneering eyes of the day to mention the acapulco ship is to hark back to the days of candish of drake dampier anson and a score of other great and hardy sea captains who made it the business of their lives to singe the king of Spain his beard there could have been nothing more engaging more inviting more brilliant to the piratical imagination than the dream of the contents of the galleons hold crusados of gold chests of pieces of eight crucifixes of precious ore exquisitely wrought, silver and gold in bars, silks, spices, tea, a commodity inexpressibly costly, chocolate and sweetmeats were among the items of freights, which heaped their prodigious values to flush with the main hatch, so that there was scarcely room for a rat to turn amidst the glorious and princely commodities whose owner was his most Christian majesty. The samples which the buccaneers fell in with justified them in forming extraordinary theories as regards the values of the annual vessels which sailed with the King of Spain's money. Dampier, for instance, in 1684, came across three ships, all laden as deep as they could swim, he found in the bigger ship many tons of marmalade of quinces, and a stately mule, and he ought also to have found in her eight hundred thousand pieces of eight, which had been put on board of her for conveyance to Panama, but unhappily for Dampier, the merchants, whilst loading her, hearing that the freebooters were cruising about in the neighbourhood, ordered the money to be taken out of her and brought ashore. There are some very curious particulars of the Acapulco ship given by the Abbe Raynal. He describes her as a vessel of about 2,000 tons, and he adds that she was dispatched every year from the port of Manila. The law was supposed to prohibit her from carrying more than 4,000 bales of merchandise, but she was usually loaded with at least double that quantity the cost of building and of fitting out and the expenses of the voyage were borne by the government whose indemnification never exceeded seventy-five thousand piastres nearly seventeen thousand pounds the departure of the vessel was usually fixed for the month of july her practice Was to steer northward as far as the thirtieth degree of latitude where she picked up the trade wind which blew her to her destination the captain had his course pricked for him and the smallest deviation from it was attended with severe penalties it took the unwieldy old wagon six months to plow the peaceful Pacific to the Philippines the abbe attributes this incredible slowness to the vessel being overstocked with men and merchandise and to the timidity of her people who would frequently heave their ship too on a fine, quiet night through fear of the darkness. Reynal, however, omits to point out a difference between the annual ship from Manila to Acapulco and the annual ship from Acapulco to Manila. The former was mainly the object of the buccaneers' attacks, the reason being that when she sailed from Manila, being deeply laden with a variety of bulky goods, such as Chinese silks and manufactures, Indian stuffs of all kinds, calicoes and chintz, besides embroidery, goldsmith's work, and so forth, the produce of the Chinese living at Manila, There was no room for mounting her tier of guns. In addition to this, her crew were as few as was consistent with her safe navigation, so that her space should not be crowded with provisions. She was, therefore, weakly manned, and armed disproportionately to her capacity, and was, in consequence, the prey of the freebooters. Her value was not equal to that of the other ship but she was rich enough to repay piratical proceedings her cargo being generally estimated at three millions of dollars on the other hand the chief freight of the ship from acapulco was silver and gold she carried no bulky cargo there was plenty of room in her and before she left port her lower tier was mounted and some companies of soldiers added to supplement the fighting powers of the crew amounting in all to about six hundred men. It is reasonable, then, that our friends the freebooters should have looked askant at the Acapulco ship when she happened to be bound to Manila. These vessels were built at the Philippines, of timber that did not splinter, with sides much thicker and stronger than those of ships of the same burden, constructed in Europe. Captain Cook, not to be confounded with the later great circumnavigator, who started, in company with Rogers and Courtney, in 1708, to capture the Acapulco ship, gives a graphic account of the fight and the failure of the contest. The Duke, the Duchess, and the Marquis were the three Englishmen that attacked her. The struggle was a long one. The Galleon was a tall ship, in the old meaning of the word, and her people fought for her furiously her burden was 900 tons and in addition to 450 of a crew besides passengers she had 150 european pirates on board who having their ill-gotten booty with them were resolved to defend it to the last spite of the incessant raids made upon the annual ship by the most desperate set of sailors that ever went to sea She was only captured three times, namely by Candish in 1587, by Rogers in 1709, and by Anson in 1742. The account in Candish's voyage of his capture of the ship, which was named the Santa Anna, is peculiarly graphic and vigorous. It was on the 4th of November that our brave and great seaman fell in with the Spaniard, In the afternoon they were close enough to exchange broadsides. She was a vessel of seven hundred tons, apparently full of men, to oppose whom Candish had not above fifty or sixty at most. Not a creature was to be seen on board the Spaniard, so carefully had they crowned their defences. Though from behind their sights, as they were called, they discharged lances, javelins, rapiers, and an innumerable quantity of large stones which they threw overboard upon our heads and into our ship so fast and being so many of them that they put us off the ship again with the loss of two of our men who were slain and four or five wounded however the english continued to ply them so hard with shot that the spaniards gave up and after a fight that had lasted nearly six hours hoisted a flag of truce. The ship's freight is represented as consisting of 122,000 pesos of gold, with large quantities of silk, satin, damask, musk, and divers other merchandise and great plenty of all manner of provisions, with the choice of many conserves and several sorts of very good wine. This conflict is only less memorable, than Drake's famous fight with the Cacafuego. The vessel was not an Acapulco ship, but she was as good in her way as the richest of them. It took Drake six days to unload the prize. A Spanish writer, Lopez Vaz, says that there were in the Cacafuego eight hundred and fifty thousand pesos of silver and forty thousand pesos of gold, all which was customed as the expression then was. But what treasure, he adds, they had uncustomed, I know not, for many times they carry almost as much more as they pay custom for, otherwise the king would take it from them, if they should be known to have any great sum. It dazzles the imagination to read of these wonderful prizes how heavily the haughty don suffered by the amazing audacity and courage of drake alone is a matter of history it is calculated by lopez vaz that the english captain carried from the coast of peru nearly a million and a quarter ducats worth of silver he also carried away one hundred thousand pesos of gold equal to ten quintals each quintal valued at fifteen hundred spanish ducats besides gold and silver ornaments pearls precious stones coined money and other things of great value the whole cargo brought home by the golden hind was valued at eight hundred thousand pounds this is a large sum when regard is had to the comparative value of money small wonder That the great south sea became the haunt of sailors with easy consciences it was only necessary long after the time of the noble drake to speak of the acapulco ship to recall the glorious captures of sir francis and to make the very ocean that washed the seaboard of mexico and of the south american continent seem to run with auriferous surges in the enchanted imaginations of the lean and fearless gentlemen of Limehouse and Greenhithe. Of course, the most renowned of all those old conflicts with the Don was Commodore Anson's taking of the Nuestra Senora de Cabadonga, whose commander was a Portuguese named Dom Geronimo de Montero. This wonderful galleon was pierced for sixty-four guns, though she only carried thirty-six when she came into action, most of them being twelve-pounders, and seventeen of them brass. But then she also carried twenty-eight petereros along her rails, quarters, and tops, each of these little pieces, which were of the nature of a swivel, shooting four-pound balls her fighting force consisted of six hundred and forty men the wonder of this famous action lies in the inequality of the contest the centurion was rusty and foul with long keeping the sea there was besides much sickness on board moreover she had originally started with the very worst kind of crew that the judgment of a government could select for the extending of Britannia's name and fame in distant parts, and a large proportion of these aged cripples and farmhouse greenhorns were dead. The Spaniard was in a wonderful posture of defence. She was well furnished with small arms and fitted with close quarters and a strong network of two-inch rope, fortified with half-pikes, placed in the manner of chevaux-de-frise to prevent the enemy from boarding. Nevertheless, she had sixty-four men killed and eighty-four wounded, whilst the centurion had only two men killed and a lieutenant and sixteen wounded, all of whom, with the exception of one, recovered. There is a true Nelsonian touch in Anson's disposition of his slender company. Thirty of the best marksmen were in the tops, two men were placed at a gun to load it and gangs formed of ten men each were appointed to go from gun to gun to run them out and fire them as fast as they were loaded by this means the centurion was enabled to keep up an incessant fire the value of the prize was reckoned at a million and a half dollars the acapulco ship continued to ply long after this business but the buccaneers had abandoned the field. The pirate, pure and simple, could not find his account in the South Sea, and stuck to the West Indian parallels, and so the old craft, made famous by the repeated efforts to capture them, sank into the general obscurity of the ocean fleets. End of section 15. Recording by Steve Chilvers, Norwich, England.